This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, Georgie, check for Dadsy, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. <laughs> only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery free in terms supply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It was a very difficult time for me working with people who were. <laughs> um... <laughs> Leicester City have a penalty kick in the six minutes of injury time. Injury time. Injury time. Look out, takes. Almunia saves. Look out, follows in. Almunia saves again. And now Watford are on the counter attack. Boris Diary. Oh, I don't believe this. Here's Hawk. Diary. I do not believe what I've just seen. Troy has scored from a Leicester penalty that was saved by Almunia. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. 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 You're listening to the Do Not Scratch Your Eyes podcast. Joining us today, author, filmmaker and Watford fan, Dougie Brimson. Good evening, Dougie. How are you? Good evening. It's nice to be here again. (laughs) For those that don't know, I'm going to say this because you'll probably catch that. This is the third time we've tried to recall this. (laughs) And uh, once it was deleted and the second time it fell foul of the censor. Yeah. Um, no names mentioned. No. But, um, well, was... I've got to be honest, Dougie. Uh, thank you very much for being patient and saying let's do it again because many other people right. have told us to off. So uh, it, it's lovely to have you here. And, and, and genuinely, we are fans of your work and, and everything you thank do. You. So. I uh, appreciate that. Ah, no, it's true. It's true. So let's go back. Uh, 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 Hemel Lad. Yep. Uh, I'm a first generation Hemel. I was born in Hemel in 1959. My dad was a Cockney, proper Cockney. He was born in Shoreditch. Um, and him and my mum moved out in um, the mid 50s uh, to the new town of Hemel. One of six, five boys and a girl. So you can imagine it's a bit of a war zone. My yeah. dad was a Tottenham fan uh, all his life. and uh, But he never took me to see Tottenham. Started going to watch Chelsea, funny enough, when I was about 13, I think. Primarily as a way of escaping on a Saturday. Right. Escaping like the war zone that was my house. Right. And uh, and it was, I mean, it was mayhem, absolute mayhem, pretty much every Saturday. It was in the highlight, you know, the heydays of the, the troubles, to want, put one another words. And I, it got so sh- so shady, and then there's a couple of things happened that I thought, you know, this is too dangerous. And so, my mum never really knew I was going anywhere. Oh, and, so you just um, disappeared on a Saturday afternoon yeah, and came back again? on a Saturday. Well, we used to, I mean, then were the days where we'd go out at nine o'clock and play football, 50 of us in a field for like... 12 hours and turn up when it was dark. Yeah. And she, she didn't bat an eyelid. I, uh, a couple of mates asked me to go over to Watford. Uh, my first game was Watford Charlton, uh, about in the days of Barry Endy. And my first actual football game was 1967, which was Watford Bristol Rovers. I sat in the show, I was with my dad. It was the only game he ever took me to. Uh, and it was crap. And I didn't go to another game for, for years after that. But once I started going to Watford, my first game was Watford Charlton. I think I left before the end and Endy scored two goals in the last five minutes. Yeah. So I swore I'd never leave another game. But after that, I started going regularly, and it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, you, you've done it. It's like home. Yes. Oh, absolutely. You, you settle into the routine. You know, I, I didn't go every week. It was because by then I was already into motor racing, and so uh, I'd kind of alternate the two, really. Yeah, Watford sort of took over from um, you going to Chelsea. I imagine there was a massive difference in terms of crowds because Watford didn't have any oh god yeah you know well that, that's why or... that was that was why I mean you, you went when you went to Chelsea it wasn't about necessarily about the football it was about everything else you know it was about the journey there and back and the, the bloody mayhem that went on inside the ground it was very exciting 
You know, there's no two ways to describe it. It was very exciting, frightening at times, but very exciting. Yeah. And Watford was very different. It was, it was very much uh, about the football. I, I kind of really got into it. I mean, I was playing football. I was playing football and rugby. Then, and I, I really got into, you know, watching the actual game. Luther Blissett, it was a Watford 11 actually came to my school, which was Halsey School in Hemel. They played there. They played an exhibition game against our first team. Yeah. Of which I was nowhere near. Uh, it was that. It was kind of, well, these are actually real blokes. You know, they're, they're kind of proper footballers. And I was, uh, I, I mean, I've been a Luther fan ever since. So, yeah, that was it for me. I was a Watford boy from then on. Surrounded by Arsenal and Tottenham and Chelsea fans, so you know Watford was still a tiny little local club to us. We suffer, we suffer with that now, though, don't we? With Chelsea and Arsenal and Spurs and our catchment area trying to get the supporters. Oh, I, I think I think we always I think Watford always will. You know that's that's the nature of where we're we're situated and the nature of the club. And you know, of course, GT come along and, and built this kind of family club uh, ethos, which to many in many respects kind of localized it even more. Um, but we love that. We embrace that, you know, and and uh, continue to do so. And I think that's the the localized issue element of the support and the, the the culture of the club is what keeps a lot of people going back. No, I'd agree with that's that. That's changing now, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Yeah. But um, I, I I think that's uh, that was one of the great things he did, and his link with the fans, of course, you know, his close association with the fans, and the way he treated us. You know, because at times we were a pain in the ass. But um, the way he treated us and, you know, respected the fact that we went either and everywhere to follow him, you know, just cemented our kind of admiration for him and the club and the side at that time. Fantastic. I mean, it was a fantastic time. You know, but I was, by the time it really took hold, I was in the military. So I was coming back to games at weekends, not doing aways. And then I was posted to Germany for a couple of years, but I'd still come back from Germany to watch the odd game. And then I came back in the March, in the February eight, in February eighty two. Got back just in time for the Falklands War. Went off to the Falklands War and came back and just caught the end of that promotion season. Uh, we went to all the games, and then we took the decision that we're going to every game pre-season, home away, every single game we can, and we did. And so we got the full experience of of that season, and it was indescribably exciting. Mm. You know, it was so much fun everywhere we went. It was like an adventure. You know, we had so many laughs, you know, so much fun that season, as did the team. You could see the team really enjoyed what they were doing. Yeah. It was just a brilliant time. It was a brilliant thing to be a part of that season and the season afterwards, you know, going into Europe and that sort of stuff. Just to touch on what you said that you, obviously, you know, we follow you on, on, on a few platforms, social media, and I see the odd photo of your service days. Just take us back a, a little bit to, to the Falklands that you just mentioned there, which, you know, from an outsider looking in, it, it, it probably seemed a very bleak place. But when we've spoken to you before, you've actually described it as, as one of the best times of your life, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it's weird. A, a lot of, a lot of veterans who've been in combat will describe it as exciting, particularly in the, I mean, remember in, I was in the rap, so I wasn't, you know, sitting in a trench somewhere waiting for someone to shoot at me. You know, I was on a tropical island in the middle of the Atlantic. And an incredibly exciting time because we trained for all this stuff. And we, we, you know, I'd gone through the Cold War and the problems with the IRA in Germany, and, you know, which was, was ongoing. And then all of a sudden we, we're fighting a completely different kind of war from the one we'd been training for for the last well ever since certainly since i'd been in but 15 years before that you know we were looking at we had aircraft that were literally going to take off and never come back because there'd be nothing to come back that was basically the military ethos at that time it was an incredible experience to be part of this this military machine that suddenly went from a completely disjointed organization which is what it was to this incredibly efficient machine you know, it was, it was staggering. And the fact, you know, a lot of the, anyone who knows anything about the Vulcan raids on Port Stanley knows that it was literally a Heath Robinson affair. <laughs> if anyone who doesn't know what Heath Robinson is, then look it up. It's like a kind of bodged job of everything. And it was a kind of do or die. I mean, them guys didn't know if they was ever going to make it back because the aircraft was so old, they'd been patched together. And yet they, they made it literally in one case with running on fumes. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. Staggering, staggering organisation. But we, we somehow pulled it off. And it, it it changed. The nature of it changed when people started coming back. The injured started coming back because that was part of the job I was doing. It was kind of dealing with that logistics of that. And then it kind of hit homes as this this is real. Mm. This is the real deal. This is actually combat, proper combat, combat for yeah, these yeah. guys. You know, yeah. not, not like that. I mean, my job was basically pranking people and winding people up. Just, <laughs> 
you know, killing, killing time by doing stupid things. You know, not much different from now. No, but, um, but having a laugh, but getting the job done. I mean, it's all you know, it's all about getting the job done. In 82, no, sorry, 92, I went to the Falklands proper. And when you see the battlefields, when you see what the Paras did and the Marines did and where they fought and where they died, of course, you, you're just in awe of what they pulled off and the fact that they pulled this incredible feat of war, pulled it off. I mean, you know, it's uh, until you've seen it, you know, been there and looked at the, the landscape, which is staggeringly gorgeous. Yeah. But, um, until you've seen the landscape and like stood there and, and basically stood still and then sink six inches into a bog, you you can't comprehend what they went through. Is it very much still that the Falkland Islands are a bit like where we were in the 1950s or something? I mean, that's how I've heard it described. Previously. Not not now. I mean, it was then because um, I mean, when the war broke out, I, I'd as I said, I just got back and I went to a, a squadron um, where my job was basically picking up crashed aircraft that was my job we had a lot of crashes back then and so people like me used to go and pick the crashes up and uh and i'd been there literally about four or five weeks the invasion went in and i'd just come from a harrier squadron we knew the harriers would go so they basically lined us up and said who wants to go so uh i stood there and everybody took a step backwards in true blackadder fashion <laughs> and i said well I, I, yeah i'm quite happy to go no you know, no one really knows me here I, i'm familiar with working in the field and on harriers and stuff like that. and they said right if you want to go go but there's a guy who's on leave we have to ask him first because he did basically the same job as me and he wanted to go and luckily for me it worked out because he went first and did all the setting up and all the hard graft so by the time i got there everything was set up it was all set up <laughs> it was all set up it was a piece of so i just watched the airplanes take off all day and kind of come back and uh, did all the easy bit what, what was your background then dougie was it engineering is that how you kind of got into that or no my dad my dad was an entertainer he's a he was a, a comic and so uh he was very famous at that time and all my brothers since have gone into the music industry in some, in some way or another they're all still involved in kind of entertainment but i'd always been fascinated by engineering which is why i got into motor racing and i was yeah. building bloody go-karts to race down hills and all sorts of stuff quite early age uh no rhyme or reason no military connection um i finished school was going to go into six form to study architecture either architecture or uh, draftsmanship and then one day i just jumped on my little moped rode over to what for cio signed up took the form home to my dad he signed it basically because he was just pleased to get rid of one of us <laughs> one of you yeah <laughs> one, of, one less mouth to feed i think it was in the june i, I signed on signed up and i had six months then and my mum said to me do not think you're sitting around the house for six. go and find a bloody job i'd i'd you know like as we did back then, not like today. You know, I'd worked, I'd done paper rounds, I'd worked on Saturday morning jobs in butchers, all sorts of stuff. Uh, so I went and worked at, um, up in Hemel on the industrial centre for six months. And then on New Year's Eve, uh, 1975, left them when it joined the RAF, left on me wow. My first day in the RAF was 1st of January, 1976. Wow, wow New Year's Day. Wow. 16, 16. I've got to say, like, like I said, we, 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 well, like Carl said, we follow you on social media. You often post things about your time in the RAF and it always seems very, very positive. Positive. It always seems as though you, you you had fun with it. You really, obviously, enjoyed your time in the service. Oh, I, lo- I loved it every day. I loved it. I mean, it, it, there was moments where it was and it was tough, but there was always you always kind of knew this is short term. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's not forever because yeah. it's not forever. It's not going to be forever. Uh, it's like you know, if you're on ex- you know, if you're on exercise in the woods in Germany and it's raining and it's rained for five days solid and you're trying to get aircraft into the air and the, the runway you know Harry, because harriers go you know from, we're working out of forests so you lay a metal strip on the floor and then every night the engineers are coming having to come in and lift the whole strip so it's a hundred yards of metal you know planking really to dry it try and dry it out underneath or pack it underneath with sand and then relay it in time for us to go flying in the morning you know after five or six days of that we are wet through everything's wet it really begins to <laughs> you know, well, in, in a week, I'm going to be, you know, in three days, the exercise is going to be over. So then we can start going into town, you know, getting faced or going to sex clubs or whatever, the kind of stuff we did. But it was just a lot of fun. You know, we had, yeah, just loved it. Had some amazing experiences. I mean, people say to me, will you write an autobiography? I would never write an autobiography purely <laughs> because of my military time. Yeah. because um, the stories and things we got up to it, you, it's like a Forrest Gump if you write all this stuff down you'd never believe it you would never believe some of the, the stuff we went through or pulled off but for us it was kind of just another anecdote 
um, meeting your own families. You know. I um, I speak to um, Chris Adams, who's a, who's a Watford um, oh, he's a legend, and he's a legend, he's a legend. and he's ser- serving still. Um, and he he's the gentleman who uh, put the reef down at, at Vicarage Road, and he he tells me, I mean, he's told me some absolute, and and they're not fit for fit for this <laughs> podcast, but he's told me some absolute like an mind blowing stuff, mind blowing I mean, stuff. He's an amazing character, you know. He's been in the RAF all his pretty much all his bloody life. Yeah. It's the longest serving NCO in the Air Force. Right. I didn't now. know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think so. But what a guy, you know, he's, and he's still out. It's not like he's f***ing about, it's in an office. Yeah. He, I know he's been to Gibraltar and to Cyprus yeah. and all sorts Doing of Doing stuff, as he says, keeping us all oh, safe. Secret stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what he says. I'm doing secret stuff. Secret stuff, can't yeah, tell you. I kind of, I can kind of guess what he's doing. Yeah, he just um, said, he just tells me that I can sleep safely at night, knowing that he's still out there. I was like, okay, I can take that. Yeah, he's a, uh, he's a top man, absolutely top man. I'm sure I worked with him. I think we worked together once uh, at Halton up near Aylesbury. Okay, I can't remember. I can, we can't remember for sure, but we've he, he, he does listen heart. to these, so I'm sure he'll pitch up does at he? some point. Yeah, and right, uh, like, he is a top man. I Good saw him on. Uh, I saw him at the Arsenal game. Um, and he was on form as always. <laughs> he's always on form. He, yeah. He's always on form. Yeah, I wouldn't want to cross him though. Wouldn't no. have to work for him. Um, so when you left the military, if I recall correctly, you, you were at a bit of a loose end and you got involved in extra work on films. Is that correct? Yeah, I left in '94 because the manufacturer, bless her heart, was throwing money at us all to move. They gave me a big fat chunk of money. And so I left really not knowing what I wanted to do, other than I didn't want to do any engineering. I certainly didn't want to work for anybody else, which is uh, two great ideals if you've got a plan to back them up, which I didn't have. I spent some time working for an engineering firm in Luton during that period. But I also... um, before that, I, I was working with my brothers doing extra stuff. And Eddie and I, who worked together a lot at that time, we just thought we were seeing all this crap being written about the threat posed by hooliganism and stuff. And, uh, and we'd been around enough, uh, Eddie more than I, because I'd been away for a lot of time. And none of what we were being told and what the media were putting out kind of represented what it was like to just be a football fan on the peripheries of that scene week in and week out. You know, we were Watford, you know, we weren't the ICF or bloody Chelsea had done. And, and for us, you know, going to Stoke or Wolves or Millwall and getting out in one piece was as often as exciting as, you know, any anything else. And uh, But it was the, the fun element, the excitement element that no one was writing about. You don't do anything if it's fun. You certainly don't do it season in, season out. Same as just going to football. It's just another way of going to football. It was back then. Safety in numbers and all that sort of stuff. You have a crack when you're away. You have a laugh, a few beers, you know, a bit of mischief maybe. A lot of banter because mm. you could have banter back then. Yeah, that was allowed then, yeah. Yeah, it was allowed then. And so we thought, well, we should think about writing a book. And so we, But we started to talk to other lads we were working with because there's a lot of young football lads as well. And all their experiences and opinions were pretty much the same as ours. And so we thought, well, we've got something here. And we started to write stuff down. And eventually, probably September... 95 I would have said we thought we've got to if this is going to get published we've got to go because we've got a finite amount of time so I walked into a WH Smith's picked up a book wrote to the publisher who had a headline the guy who was whose desk it was was away so it landed on his I don't know if it was assistant or another editor's desk a guy called Ian Marshall he wrote back and said I, I like the concept I like what you want to do can you send me some stuff so we sent it some stuff we like that asked for some more stuff we, we sent him some more and in the end I said to him look you I want this or you don't if you don't I'm going to go to someone else because they were the only publishers we'd approached and uh, and we didn't know anyone in publishing didn't know anyone had written a book we'd never written anything really up to that point and uh, and we were filming a movie in Hamburg uh, my wife rang me up and said there's a letter from Headline so I told her to open it and he said we'll publish it these are quite a big deal you know this is head or the headline and there's a check here as well which is amazing and uh and the rest as they say is history you know what marked it out was that it wasn't the first hooligan book and and i i call it a hooligan book because everybody else calls it a hooligan book to me yeah, it's just yeah, a yeah. football fans book football fans yeah yeah because we were just football fans the thing that marked it out was that a we look like we do eddie had always had a shaved head i'd had my head shaved to do a bloody fuji film commercial it's the only reason I had a bald head. <laughs> and I actually quite liked it, so I kept it. Yeah. And it, got yeah. Me, and it was getting me more work, you know, getting nicked in the bill and things like that. And we were, you know, we said, well, we'll go anywhere to promote. So suddenly the, the media have gone from speaking to the guys at Leicester University and all their anally retentive sociologist nonsense 
talking to two guys who were actually in the middle of it. And they went in and, you know, expecting us to be cannon fodder and said, sit there and slaughter us. And uh, we just sat there and said, you're wrong. And we explained why they were wrong and we didn't take no crap. And we were everywhere because yeah. they needed people to talk to to keep this story going. And the book went through, the, I mean, everywhere we go was the first book, it went through the roof. You know? And then after after the tournament, at which pretty much everything we said was right, we said was going to happen, was probably on the money. We did it, We did another four books, Derby Days, England, My England, and the Capital Punishment book. And then Eddie went off and did a book, a fictional book. I did The Geezer's Guide to Football, uh, which is probably closer to, to proper fan book. But the problem with it, with, with The Geezer's Guide to Football, is I didn't use the word parody on the introduction. So everybody, you know, so many people took it as a serious book. I've read that and book. It was like, I've read that book. Sake, yeah. you know, get, get a life. <laughs> and so, uh, and then after that, I did, uh, I got asked, to, to work with Linda LaPlante on, on a TV show and from that the crew was born and uh, and that was it I was off and running and then Green Street came along and, and I haven't looked back since so in fact there's an interesting anecdote for you in November of 2011 uh, my career was, I was as a writer was finished I couldn't get uh, a publishing deal certainly wasn't interested in going into the film game and I got a letter back from Headline to say that uh, the crew uh, they'd stopped they weren't interested in doing the crew anymore uh, or Top Dog for that matter and so the rights came back to me they were giving me the rights back so I could do them what I want but I had no idea what I was going to do so my writing career was effectively finished and then shortly after that a guy emailed me out of nowhere and said we've got these we're doing these things called ebooks. They're, they're like they're, they're going to they're going to be massive and I said well they're not going to be massive it's going to be complete never done so I gave him the geezer's guide to football to so put that out he said I'll print them for free I'll do it for free just want to get you online see how see you know see how make him some make yeah. him some money make me some money he put the geezer's guide to football out and it went crazy so I just give him every book you know, every book I've done up to that point and uh, they all came out on 11th of November 2011 and my career went ballistic the ballistic. sales were off the charts and the crew went straight to number one on the football charts and it is still number one today. number one yeah, that's I saw a that hell of an Ten years, mate. I mean, it's amazing. That's a hell of an so, achievement. I'm so proud of it. And I just carried, I just got back into doing it. You know, we got Billy's Log, Top Dog, came out, Wings of a Sparrow. I did another oh. done another two films. So, yeah, I've carried on since then, really. And now yeah. I'm producing films. It's amazing. I know. You're well, flying, mate, flying. But there, there, there is, just like looking back at those films, there is a, and, I, and I've said it before when we've spoken, that there is that kind of, underbelly of culture that's fascinated by the gangsters and the hooligans yeah. and, and, and all that and, and I, you know and there's obviously a market for it and I know we live in a day and age now where we can't say anything because we're not allowed because it's it's a society that we live in but clearly you know some somewhere out there there's still a there's still a need a, a want and a desire to to be interested it's in that huge. sort of thing it's, it's, huge. Huge. it's huge I mean people forget you know people I, I say this all the time I, I tweeted it the other day you know Twitter isn't with the real isn't the real world so don't forge your opinions on Twitter <laughs> so, so, some people do, need to probably understand that a little yeah, bit some more people really need to get a grasp on that simple fact you're terrified to put anything on Twitter these days without getting piled in on and I, I, I it amps me all the time I genuinely don't get monkey <laughs> we hadn't you know, noticed yeah I've actually, I've actually have you noticed though I've been told to tone it down oh have you by yeah, Twitter told, um, yeah um, no by uh, my um, business partner okay. Uh, okay because he said I'm trying I'm out here trying to raise millions of to make movies and you're giving people so that's fine there is this uh passion for gang yeah. violent yeah, 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 yeah. british this subculture of british movies is there and it's as strong as ever and it will continue you'll continue to get these movies come out because they sell and they make money they don't make a lot of money but they make enough money to help people make the next one you know and the next one and the next one and most of them are low budget but they they help finance other people and most importantly they keep people in work and they keep the industry alive which is absolutely vile. I've done three. Green Street, Top Dog, and We Still Kill the Old Way. You know, I've done my bit. They've all gone down really pretty well. We've all won awards, which is nice. Uh, I won't do another one because I, I'm bored of them. I keep getting asked to do them. But, you know, the only one I would do, if I was ever asked, would, would be a proper sequel to Green Street, because which we almost did a few years ago. Because Green Street 2 and 3 are nothing really to do with the original Green Street. And I'd like to, to make more of a bother character with Leo. I've got a script pretty much written for that anyway but we can't get the 
rights because I don't own the rights to the character, the studio, uh, and uh, they're not letting us use them, so we can't do anything. You know, it's a, it's a real not, bit of a nightmare. Can, can you not even write a um, book? You can't write a book either with those characters. No, because uh, again, it's this, it was written into my contract that um, I could I have the literary right to Green Street, but the, it was such a, a very difficult. It was a very difficult time for me working with people who were. Um, <laughs> that's the start to this uh, podcast. Yeah. By the way. That's the quote of the day. Yeah, but it, it is. You know, there's only I can't. You know, it's, I just can't can't be bothered with it. In fact, when, with the new company, Red Bus, we've got a strict no a holes policy. It's um, on the door as you walk in. Is that, in, is that written on. into the contracts? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's literally written. Yeah, into it's, it's basically. You know, we've got none. I mean, we've got a team around us. Everybody has to agree that this person's a good person. You know, decent. They've got to get on with everybody. Have to speak to everybody before they come on board. So is that from the actor's point of view? Like as in no, actors and cast crew. Cast crew, everyone. everyone. Okay, cool. Everyone. I've off two people now. Right. Really? Yeah. Just can't be honest. <laughs> it's like black balling at the Masons, is it? I'm afraid there's a black oh, ball. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, but when you get, I mean, I'm, I'm the boss, you know, I, I haven't been the boss since I'm my Air Force day. And so you sit there and you have an argument about people, about stupid stuff, you know, about people they want to bring on board. And there's actors I will never work with. I mean, I have a fairly extensive list. A lot of it stems from Twitter, to be fair. I don't disbelieve but, you, Doug. <laughs> I don't disbelieve yeah, but you. If someone pops up on my, on my list, who's on my list, they're, they're out. There's yeah. no... There's no um, if, buts, and maybe. It's just yeah. a blanket now. And I had someone arguing with me, one of, you know, one of my people, who was arguing about a particular person. And in the end, I just said, look, you know, there's, there's one fundamental factor missing here. I'm the boss. And I say no. So next, and they didn't, they wouldn't let it go. And in the end, I said, that's it, you're out. Simple, I don't care what you do, you're out. I don't need, I don't want to be on a set and argue with you. I've got three films in development at the moment. It's all consuming. I was going to say, I can imagine that's like engulfed you, hasn't it, really? from from Because I remember when you were, the, the uh, Red Bus thing was kind of mentioned before and it was it was just rolling out and then all of a sudden it just seems to have gone boom and so well, red, i mean red bus started uh, uh, you know and it's red bus movies i i'd written loads of scripts uh over the last because I, I stopped working on books i think wings of a sparrow was my last book oh no in and i was my last book but that was a big break after wings of a sparrow so i'd um I'd started writing more scripts uh, and none of them were getting made got close really close a few times but we just couldn't get over the that kind of hurdle and and part of that is snobbery part of that is the thing that i sit right of center politically which people didn't particularly like people didn't like the fact that i voted brexit that i voted tory because i've got a brilliant mp who happens to be a tory as well i vote for him and all of those things are fact you know are factors in this mental age we live in and so i wasn't getting stuff made some of it wasn't very good to be fair you know it was the wrong script wrong time i'm 63 well 62 you know if you're 30 years old do you really want to work with someone who's old enough to be your granddad that's that's true now that's not just films that's publishing as well i get that in publishing and uh, so i understand that ageism that's, that's fine and in the end i was i was working on another project with a guy called uh, Chris O'Farrell, who lives in Chipperfield. We were, were we were developing this project that's uh, a TV for TV for Netflix, uh, we, which we had to put on hold because it's about a pandemic. Oh God! And we had oh. a pandemic. Amazing. <laughs> okay. well, pandemic there we are. Joined us. <laughs> and so we were talking about doing other stuff, and I, I had a couple of stuff on the go. And he said, "Look, why don't we just form a company for you to make your own movies? Because you know they're all really they're good stories, good scripts. Because I don't the way I work is I don't write the end script." I'll write the the story, then you write what is called a a vomit draft, which is just for me, which basically you you scribble in all the notes, what goes where, who says what, who shakes who, who gets killed, whatever. Uh, And then I'll write a first draft and then maybe a second draft. We go looking for directors, the director comes in and it becomes his script because it's not my script you see on screen, it's the director's script. So I work with the director to give him what he wants. And so ultimately what we get on screen is the director's vision of my story. Now, I'm quite happy with that, perfectly happy with that. I have no problems with credits, no problems with co-writing. I like to co-write. I've got two brilliant co-writers I work with. Um, A guy called Gary Lawrence, another guy called Paul Wolf. And that's different from how it normally works. Because when you submit a script, people say, oh, I like this script, but can you make all these changes? So you do all these rewrites changes, which take weeks, during which time you're not earning any money. Mm, it's a full-time sure. gig. You're still messing around with that, yeah. And mm. then they'll turn around and say, oh, no, we don't like it after it. So you've wasted all that time. And you can waste months, six, seven, eight months more on a single project just for someone to say no. And mm. anybody can say no at any time. It's a bloody nightmare. 
And we've kind of changed that around. So, so we get literally a couple of stages along the process and say, look, if you like this, help us develop it. But we need some kind of commitment and nothing spells commitment like money. So if they earn money over and we are very generous in the back ends of stuff. So as soon as money starts coming in, we'll pay. You know, people will start to get paid. And we have paid quite a high percentage because we want them to be incentivized to make a good movie and come on board to make the next movie and the movie after that. So we want to get this core of people around us. You know, we're working with some amazing producers who are in the American film market at the moment, vlogging the gentle sex. They're they're kind of yeah, on they're totally on board. And so it's it's how we work. It's a different way of working. Yeah. You know, we we the gentle sex came about. We we film. We just filmed the what they call a sizzle, which is basically a teaser for investors and people like that, and Netflix, the Netflixes of this world. And that's a and, film, uh, is it? The, the, the Gentle Sex. The, the Gentle Sex is a film. Yeah, it started off as a, a me and Gary Lawrence, a guy called Gary Lawrence, who I wrote "We Still Kill the Old Web, who was in Green Street. And I first met when I did my first ever job, scriptwriting job, which was a, a short movie called "It's a Casual Life." We've been mates ever since, and we we write a lot together. We wrote a, a story about four old guys, four old blokes in an old people's home, four old veterans, and they escaped. And nothing much got done with it. It was it's great. It was just a funny little British story. A bit old-fashioned, but no, nothing worse for that. And we were in a pub, and Alison Steadman was in there. Oh, brilliant. A load of mates. Oh, I love Alison Steadman. Uh, yeah. And we said... Now we should write France instead. We need to give her the script. Give her the script. <laughs> and we both bought, we both bought it. And then, oh no! <laughs> and then um, we got talking to a few people um, about different stuff. And then we were doing um, Top Dog. We had um, an actress called Susan Penhaligon, who was the older listeners to this will know who Susan Penhaligon is. She was uh, an actress in a, probably the most famous. TV show at its time called A Bokeh of Barbed Wire. And she was in uh, oh, The Daily Earth Stood Still, all these things. Brilliant British actress. She does theatre now. And I was talking to her and said, why don't you, why don't we ever see you on film or on TV anymore? You're, like, you're awesome. You're amazing. She said, no one ever writes for us. No one ever writes for anyone my age. And we're like, well, if no one else will, we bloody will. We should. And so we took the story to um, this thing which was originally called The Old Gits. That was our working, t- that was our working title. And, uh, and it became a gentle sex about four old women Women who, who live in a uh, it's manor house in the middle of nowhere and suddenly are faced with eviction and there's a twist in the story. Yeah, that's our first project. And we've just signed Joan Collins to, to play the lead. She's fabulous. Amazing. Um, BFI, the British film industry, have, have thrown some money at us already, which is nice. Awesome. We've got some other casting names uh, who we're waiting for final decisions on. They're all like very keen. We're just waiting to see all the deals. Uh, some proper John Collins level names. So we're going to have an amazing cast, and we're due to film that in March. And a, and a so couple I of extras, it. couple of extras sitting in the back that are fairly familiar to some people. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The, the we, we say is, that we 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 bumped into your son at Luther Blissett's um, investiture. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, for for those of you that don't know, he was in he was in Green Street. Yes, he was the kid who got kicked to death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cheers, Dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was cheap. He was cheap and he was expendable, so I thought I'd use him. <laughs> use him, yeah. I had two, I had two kids already, so he was, he was kind of third one. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's his claim to. It's funny he, he gets asked about that all the time. Still, it's amazing. Yeah, we Green were talking to him about it. Yeah. It was a phenomenon. We've got another one we're working on in America, which is a very different thing, which I can't tell you anything about. Uh, and I've got another one I'm working on in Australia. Are you going yeah. out to to location and all these as well? Uh, I will be going out to Australia. You need somebody. I, I will hopefully be going out to Australia. <laughs> I, I, oh, I can't say anything about it. I'm working with, because the most famous name on my phone was previously Martin Kemper of Spandau Ballet. Okay. He has been usurped. He's been trumped, has he? By a a sporting, an Australian sporting icon who is, uh, who's co-writing this script. Okay. Ooh, I, could, I could have a stab at the Teasers. Dark, you know, there's many bleeding stabs. Yeah, you won't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, um, we're, we're, we're getting as much done as we can before we announce it. Yeah, it's interesting time. They wanted to, we wanted to go out to Dubai a couple of weeks ago to meet him. That was where he is. Uh, but we, we couldn't. They want us to go out to Australia in the new year, but it's, um, I don't think he's flying to Australia for a week. Has this taken over now then from writing books? 
Uh, have you read I've just stopped writing books completely. I've got one that's two thirds finished, which will be probably the fifth film we do uh, because it was a, a film script originally. And I, I started because we were so certain that the film was going to go. Um, I started writing the novel. So do you think that your authoring days are over or are you just going to put it on hold or? Uh, I, I can't see me doing another one to be honest. You know, I've, I've been writing, I've been a professional writer since 1995. So one and a, over one and a half million books now. Right. I've written books. 17, I've had 17 books published. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. And yeah, so when I say things based on my experience, which upset people, you're kind of blackballed from the industry. And there's so many things wrong with publishing at the moment as well. Whereas a working class bloke, you know, votes Tory and supported Brexit, you've got more chance of winning the lottery three weeks on the bounce than you have of getting a proper publishing book. But what's that you got know? to do with the, the fact that you might have written a really good book? Personality. It's all about personality. Unfortunately, it's about personality. Is it, you, you, if your face fits kind of thing, if it doesn't still be good? Yeah, because I don't, I don't play, you know, one of the problems is if, if you, you know, I follow a lot of publishers on Twitter. This is, and this is really what gets me in trouble. They're not interested in doing a book for blokes about blokes written by someone who's twice their age mm. because they've got nothing in common. Most of them don't know anything about football, so they're not interested in their football player. So all they're interested in is doing niche books of the latest, you know, popular genre, the desperate genre we have to fill books in because Twitter's telling them, you know, we haven't got enough books about X, Y, Z. You know, that because it's safe, they've got to play safe because they've got to protect their job. Because publishers won't take risks anymore, which is why self-publishing is, is so big still. You know, I mean, I, I had the opportunity to start my own publishing imprint about seven or eight years ago, and I, I should, really should have taken it because I know I could have pulled something off. And it's too late now. I wouldn't want to get back into it now. You're, you're facing an uphill battle all the time. All the time, yeah. But it's not necessarily just the writing. It's the promotion, uh, trying to get promotion, trying to get publicity. You know, it's very, very difficult, especially if it's about a subject like in the know is which is you know the third book in a trilogy although it's a standalone book which is about a, a guy who sits right of center politically who's got from a violent background jumps on the brexit bandwagon to kind of get power he's just mm. interested in power and it looks it explores the world worst case scenario world after brexit you know how a government uses all kinds of tactics and methods to get its own way aided and abetted by guys like my character billy evans you know the sad fact is that reality is the reality is we're seeing today uh, if i'd have written that no one have ever published it <laughs> because you can't make you can't make it up you can't make this crap up what's going on at the moment no no one wants to no one these days is really interested in publishing books about a, a world they know nothing about and are to a certain extent frightened to learn about because their beliefs are completely alien to it and i mean i'm always getting stuff what you know i got it today why don't more why don't blokes read more books by women about women because then they'd learn more about women i don't want to learn more about women i've been learning about for 60 odd years you know i still haven't got a clue no i've lived with one for a very long time and i'm still perplexed (laughs) yeah me too i'm i'm baffled it baffles me every day what what they do That's why I wrote Billy's Log. Billy's Log is about is exactly about that. It's the blokes Billy, you know, blokes Bridget Jones diary. That's what it is. Yeah. It's complete bewilderment about yeah. what makes women tick, but also about why blokes are like that. And blokes, you know, most blokes are terrified of women. <laughs> yeah, when you yeah. dig deep enough, they're terrified. Rejection is the best contraception known to man. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because it lasts for ages. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And now you've got the, you know, these days you've got the, the, you know, you can hide in your university bedroom, which is another subject we. Won't touch on probably. Um, <laughs> hide in the university bedroom and play computer games. I sit on Twitter and make up podcasts and talk. Yeah, and uh, you don't have to engage with women at all. You're right. I was having a conversation the other day, and it, it kind of falls into. To, to, in fact, it might be with you, Justin, because most of my conversations are with you nowadays. <laughs> they are. But it was it was essentially about walking on eggshells. Um, and, and I don't want to go into t- too much of it. My opinion is is. We're living in an age now where we can't say anything without offending someone. And we, you touched on it earlier. Banter is, is a non-existent language nowadays. And it's, and it, I just feel that we're in danger of ruining the, the spectacle that is football for, for, you know, just to say that the refs are p- or whatever it I, is. I, I, I wrote years ago, football, you know, certainly since the formation of the Premier League, football doesn't want a crowd, it wants an audience. And that's we're getting more and more into that. And the, the lockdown when they were playing, you know, the fact they forced through, we need to start this league again because it was driven by TV. It's always driven by TV. Yeah. yeah. 
you can't say anything of football because you've got these complete non-entities, these anonymous nomarchs who just complain and whine and accuse and rant on Twitter and, and eventually kind of, if you've got a thin skin, you're, you're going to start suffering. You're going to, you know, you're going to fall for it all. Yeah. Even people like me who's got a thick skin, I just can't be bothered with it. But when it, goes, when it oversteps the mark, you know, I'll step up to the plate and I'll defend myself. You know, you can't, you cannot see anything. I mean, there's so much going on. I mean, Watford, I, I, you know, people don't, people have started calling us Wokeford now. Is that right? You know, yeah, well, that, people call, refer to Watford as Wokeford now. That's how bad it's getting because of some of everything that's going on at, at the club. You know, I hesitate to say our club at the moment. You know, it's it's laughable. And the club are aiding, you know, the, for whatever reason, the club are aiding and abetting this small uh, band of people who have seemed to have gone quiet of late. I know I can kind of understand why. I think the um, um, this this thing that they keep putting up on the, the scoreboards about, if you spot any kind of abuse, then text this number, put the seat number in it and all that sort of stuff. Terrible. That's open to all kinds of that's interpretations. A, that's a of course it is. It's, um, I mean, it's no, no different from Twitter because it's pure malicious. Because if, if I say something and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by Stuart, you've said this, how can I, de- how do you yeah, defend you can't, yourself? Because it's gone on that tech system. There's no, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no defense. But even if you do say that, you know, I didn't say that. I said this. How do you prove it? You can't. Unless you've got the people around me who will say, no, he didn't say that. Yeah. Whereas often you haven't, because often you're surrounded by people. I mean, I'm lucky. Most of the people around me, we sit, we've sat together for seasons, so they know there is. They they put up with us <laughs> more than anything else. But they're used to it, and they like it because we're all older. We've all been around a while. But it only if takes what if you're just yeah, and you say something, you're you're finished. You you're, are. You're in real problems. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just mm-hmm. it's open to abuse, really, because anyone could say anything about anyone, yeah. and, and straight away it's logged with the club, and you know they know who's sitting in what. In what yeah, and how many or... how many black marks do you get for your band? Well, I don't know. It's not made clear, is you know, it? Because that... that's coming in. Yeah, that will happen at some point. Yeah. If I get a phone call on Monday from the club, you said this. I've got to find all these people around me who I only know at football. Say no, he didn't say. That. I think I think it's hu- hugely hugely dangerous, oh, and, I think it's, and I think it's and I think it's weaponizing a system that okay yeah, from absolutely. the from the outside that they've they've got to do something, and I appreciate that for for the, the racism. But, the club, and, but the, the, in in the old you know a few years ago, one of, and one of the things about racism in particular is that, that it became a self policing thing. Whereas if someone says anything, someone else will say to them, say something to them, and they'll either get them thrown out or they'll just say, shut, shut the F up. Uh, or in extreme cases at certain clubs, they'll give them a right hand up. Yeah, and and that that's it. It's done. Whereas if you're weaponizing this kind of complaints procedure, not only are you in, enabling this, this kind of agenda-driven minority, which we've got at our club and which every club's got, to be fair, you're, you're giving them a, a degree of power, which is out of all proportion to what they should have. You know, it's, it's like East Germany. It's mad. It's absolutely insane. And you have to now defend your innocence. It, you're, you're, so we've had this accusation against you. Well, yeah, there's no innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty. Yeah. You've got to prove your innocence. It's, it's the other way around now. It's gone the other crazy. way. It's insane. And I don't know. You know where's where right. it going to stop? Where, well, can you not say the F word? Can you not say... Well, that's come, I said that- It'll come. It'll come soon. Uh, any yeah. bad language or any kind of... Me and Carl were saying the other day, it'll be like that one of these student unions where you can't clap anymore. You've got to wave your hands or something because, you know, clapping is, you know, someone with PTSD or something might be offended by clapping. And so... It, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. And I, and I think this goes back to, you know, what we were talking about before in the Graham Taylor era. Guys like me, we grew up at a period where racism was endemic in football you know where black players were just starting to come in where Luther was getting all kinds of powers on top of that we had stuff with Elwood yeah yeah every week every single week and we backed them up by A going and watching them and be kind of shouting down all these chants by giving as much support as we possibly could to to Luther, to John Barnes, to Elton, to everybody associated with the club to just say this is us you know, we are Watford. We are one. I don't need lessons in dealing with racism or homophobia for some 20-year-old scrote sitting in his bedroom because I've had it all my football-watching life. But but they would and argue it, that it's still there because they're still hearing these words being said, you know, whether they've heard them being said or not. or whether But why don't they? Yeah, but in our with us, if we hear them, we confront the guy. Yeah. We'll turn around and say Excuse something me, to the guy yeah, there and there. I would. Yeah, I'd confront yeah. someone. I know I would. Say, if I, tap, if tap, I heard tap, something tap, like tap, that. They'll wait till they get home and go tap, tap. Tap. Or they'll run to a steward or run to a policeman, you know, and they'll, they'll be complaining to the club and the visiting club and whatever. You know, you, you saw what happened at Brighton when there was the incident outside the bar. It's the first.
first thing I do is go to Twitter when I've had my uh, teeth knocked out. Is you know, like, if you've got to start throwing bottles and glasses around someone exactly. else's town, then you're they take the trouble. Who else give a trouble? You've got to be prepared to back yourself up. If you can't even back yourself up, then shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. Just keep, your head, just keep your head down. Exactly. Don't be a f-ing idiot in someone else's town and then cry about it when you get laid out. It's just I don't know. I, again, it, it, it's, it's it's mad. It's, it's a complete. Madness, but it's, but these these guys didn't grow up with that culture. No, no. You know they think they can get away with this because no one's ever going to throw a punch anymore. No one's going to ever shout at you know, no one's going to throw naughty words at them and stuff like that. And that the club are in, enabling them by kind of giving them this platform. What if I somebody off going to the ground who I cut up and nick their parking space there's, there's yeah, something absolutely. else surrounding it and they can use that system for anything and absolutely and, and that's the that's the worry that somebody of pure innocence isn't racist who isn't homophobic gets thrown under the bus for something completely outside yeah it's of insane that. it's insane and, and and that's what I mean by weaponising it and, and the club needs to relook at it it's not the way forward but the, the club the club have backed themselves into a corner because they're frightened of stepping back from this well because then they'll face accusations. Oh well, you're in. You know, you're yeah. enabling. Yeah. Well, that's you're, the you know, danger. Kind of- that's the danger. Yeah. You know, if we're now known as Wokeford, which I've not heard before, but horrifies me that we're known as Wokeford. You're never going to go back from that position because it's impossible to go back from it. If you start easing off from your militant stance on zero tolerance of any kind of perceived harassment, you yeah. never. You've got nowhere to move, have you? you, you, you you've knackered yourself. You've got, no, you've got nowhere. I mean, I, I've always, you know, I'm of the opinion the the only, you know, I don't care what, what anyone's race i don't care about their race their religion their sexual preference what gender they identify themselves or whatever if they go into what the football club wearing a yellow shirt then that's good enough for me Absolutely. that's all, I, all i'm interested in amen to that you know they've been granted this kind of superiority this where they think but well, we're you know we're of an age where we understand all this we we are we're not homophobic we're not racist we're not this we're not the other but you are for some reason it's not just a football club it's it's it's, it's countrywide we, we somehow in a position where we have the youth mm. dictating in everything from government policy down as if we haven't lived a life we don't know what we're doing we've never been through all this stuff before it's astonishing to me how we've we've got ourselves in this position it's it's scary to me scary to me that we've empowered these people i think what doesn't help they're going to be like in 10 years time well who knows i mean it frightens me really but i think also what doesn't help is this new kind of splinter groups if you like of oh we're the so-and-so hornets and you know we're we're the i was i was going to talk about that you know, I wasn't going to talk about it. I, I, I find it quite incredible. I just wonder if it would be acceptable for us to do a irritable old gits group. Yeah, yeah but I get, I get why they want to do what they do. You know, it's no different from the Norfolk Hornets or the Hemel right. Hornets we used to have, the Garston Hornets. No different from all of them. Mm. You know, you're you're a supporters group. Great, everyone loves you. We're happy you're there. Yeah, you know, but by marking yourself out at some grounds, you you know, you're lining yourself up. You, you are, know? and that, that's my problem. You're just a supporter. Be a bloody supporter. Exactly. And that's it. You're also looking for differences, aren't you? With all of these things, it's all about looking for differences where we yeah. should just be saying no we're Watford fans and that's it the end of the the, the bottom line is we're Watford yeah. fans but it, it, it seems if you very... if you want in, if you want inclus- inclusivity which is what this is about and Watford is the most probably the most inclusive club you know in the league it has been for decades because yeah. of El- primarily I'd, because of Elton I'd say and, and I'd John. say the country maybe yeah. you know go, go you know, that far I really why, would why are you if you want inclusivity be inclusive you know we're just Watford Can, fans I mean could I join their group could I join it? Probably not, no. no. So it's not inclusive, is it? You know? No. Once you get inside that football stadium, you're just a Watford fan. So just That's be a Watford be. fan. That's how it should yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So going forward, Dougie, what's what's in the future for you? You've got some plates spinning um, film-wise. You've got three in sort of the pipeline. Are you just hoping to make more and more films, or, or do you want to make um, I I want to get these, the, the first one out of the way. I'm not sure whether we'll film the Australian one next year. Is that your decision do. to make, or is that somebody else's decision? It's all, it's all about budget. Dougie, just um, out of interest, I mean, you could obviously... Cut, you, no specific figures, but what does a low budget film cost to? to well, I, I mean, I, the, the the definition of a low budget film is depends on who you speak to. I mean, for us, between three and five million. Jesus, that's low budget. Yeah, that's that's for a, for a feature for a cinema feature. That's low budget. Wow. For a film that you're going to DVD, I mean, I know of films that have been made for five grand. 
Right, okay. You know, I, I know films I know of films that have been filmed basically on credit cards. Everything's been paid for on credit cards by calling in favours or by simply not paying people. Well, you that's a slightly unscrupulous yeah. way of doing it. It's very unscrupulous, but it goes on, unfortunately. Yeah, for me, we want to do it properly. You know, we want everyone to be paid properly. We want everybody to, you know, it's very, I'm big on, I mean, I've got, you know, we're big on uh, safety on set, inclusivity on set. So, and I've, I've made it clear that anybody who has a problem with any stage of the, the production can come to me directly and I will deal with it there and then. That's how we are. So is you know, that we, you we, as... I want to form a group of people who just want to make movies together. Is that huh? you as executive producer in that role then, effectively? No, that's me as boss. As boss? Uh, of, boss as man. boss of Red Bus as, Movies? As boss of the, of the production company. Right, you know, okay. on the set is On the set, he's the, direct, he's the director's, you know, that's his environment. That's his, He's the boss. Well, he says goes. Mm. But the management of people and everything else comes down to the producers who, who on the Gentle Six is me and a woman called Diane, Diane Shorthouse, and uh, who is fantastic, who's very, very experienced. She's won a BAFTA in the past, so she knows what she's doing. Wow. Right. Okay. Um, wow, wow. So, uh, yeah, that's we'll, we'll be very strict on, on safety. The other thing we do with Red Bus is um, 20, at least 25% of people on set will be veterans because I want to bring veterans into not just give veterans who work in the industry jobs but bring some in yeah and when we did the sizzle reel which was which is three minutes long i think which was a day shooting 90 percent of the people on that set were veterans that's brilliant awesome awesome so uh which is fantastic and we've got cassidy little who's one of the uh the main cast who was the the marine who was on strictly come dancing who lost without a leg he's only got one leg so uh so he's in our cast as well he was in coronation street so and he's brilliant, a fantastic bloke. So we had a cast was uh, one of our cast was a veteran, our director's a veteran, I'm a veteran, all our special effects guys are veterans. Uh, because you know you can give them a job and they'll do it. Of do course, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's no sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, you know, I don't mind people sitting around twiddling their thumbs if I know and if I call on them they're going to do a job, and and they do. I've been on enough sets where people are just trying to do nothing and get as much money out of you as they can. Well, it's my money. Mm. So if you're there, there's a reason why you're there, and I need you to. You know, deliver. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's working really well. The big one will be the Australian one. That's that's the big budget one. That's literally 20 million. Your ideas, where do they spring from? Is it just literally, I've got an idea, I'm going to write this down, or is it uh, a bit more sort of someone suggests something um, to you? They, they're kind of they're usually triggered by endings. Yeah. You know, I have an idea for an ending. The crew, Top Dog, and in and they were all triggered by ideas I had for endings. Billy's log was triggered by the fact that someone made me read Bridget Jones' diary, and I got so angry about it. I thought I was like, <laughs> person. Uh, Wings of a Sparrow was just a, a, an idea I'd had rattling around for ages. Uh, I just thought it's such a brilliant, simple idea. Uh, Three Greens, which is another movie I'm doing, which is, which is about a robbery, was triggered by an idea for, for an end. Because everything I write has got a twist at the end. Everything. Because I write the ending first. So then I go back to the beginning of the well, from the beginning. For me, you know, and I've, I've said it to you before, and it, it, it's, it was a pleasure just to, to speak to you the other day. I'm a huge fan of yours, the, the, the work that you've done in the past with the, with the books. And I'm really excited for you going forward. And I, and I really do hope it all works out for you. And, and yeah, just just amazing stuff, mate. It, all credit to you. So it's a great story. Your own story is, is a fantastic story. And I think one day that needs to be told, especially the stuff you can't say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Turn it into a work well, of well, fiction, Doug. Yeah, just turn it into a work of fiction. <laughs> some yeah, of these events no, didn't I, happen. God, I could tell you, I could tell you some stories. But, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, no, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, I just was honest what I do. Every day is like an adventure. You're very unassuming, Doug. You're a very, very unassuming yeah. man that just sort of just takes it all in his stride, which is it's really quite nice to see because, you know, I'm, so, I'm sure there are some authors and filmmakers that are quite up themselves or, you know, do you know who I am or, or whatever, but you, you're very unassuming and very... But I don't, yeah, but I don't know how I'm getting away with it. That's the problem. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> how no, am I, I getting away with this? I, I really don't. 
really, really don't. But I somehow am. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful. I mean, I've said lots of times, the most important person in, in the publishing world is the reader, you know, because without them, you haven't got anything. No. So my focus is always on the reader and it got to entertain people because you need them to buy the next book and or the book before, you know, stuff they haven't read. So the more you entertain them, the more likely they are to do that. Mm. The more you entertain people at the cinema, the more money your film makes so you can make the next film. That's, that's how it works. It's a business, you know. So my job is to start that process. So if you listen to your readers or your, your viewers and you treat them with courtesy and respect and not just kind of false fees and some kind of bizarre narrative or, or some weird thing that doesn't work or you don't criticise them, you just give them that respect and that courtesy. You, you can't really go wrong. Um, I'm really lucky in my readership, you know, my readership have given me a, an interesting career. You know, and I like, I, I, you know, I'd love to do more books, but it's time. Of course. You know, it's time more than anything. Of course. And so, uh, and films are more fun. Yeah. Writing is really boring. Is it really? You know, it's really boring. Uh, it can be exciting, but most of the time it's really boring. So what is the aspect uh, of your life now that you enjoy most? Good question. That's a really difficult question. I don't know. Yeah. It must I be. Know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's not the, the, the really exciting thing are the things you don't expect. Compliments I never expect. You take them, though, um, do you? You take them and you. I, I take them, but yeah. I, I don't like. I don't like getting them. I get quite embarrassed by them. But when you get something out of the blue that is taking you forward, because a film making a film is all about momentum. You know, as you say, if once momentum stalls, then you run the risk of someone else making a film about four old ladies living in a right. in an old house. Okay. So you've got to keep that momentum going. So it's all about, you know, the less information you, you release, the better. I mean, I'd love to tell you about what's going on in Australia. Absolutely no, would love to. It would blow your out. mind. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't because no, I, it would, all totally of a sudden, you, you've got other people, you know, or we should do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because these people are lazy. So they steal ideas. So you can't do it. No, that's fair enough. When it comes to so, it, Doug, um, when, 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 you're, when you're there and you're in production, just, you know, I don't know what the time difference is, but hop on, we'll have a chat about it and we'll... Uh, uh, when, I, when I can, I'll, you'll be the first to know. That's amazing. And uh, the, the, what I, the the part I'm really looking forward to is is literally sitting back in a chair and saying, we, we did it, finally pulled this off. Yeah. Because once you do the first one, then you're off because you've got, you know, I've got a track record already, yeah, but I've never produced them and, uh, and once we've got this going and i've got an amazing team around me to make sure you know make sure it's as good as we can going to happen mm. they're all very experienced they've done it loads of times before then i can sit back and then once i sit back then i can really tell then i've got the power to do that because there's a lot of things that i'm sitting on that have happened to me in the last few years people have tried to uh, knock me back or stab me in the back there's a lot of that goes on in this industry just keep it in all of a sudden you've got yeah they're all in my pocket but all of a sudden you've got a platform and it's not going to be a vindictive it's not just a personal crusade it's about cleaning up the film industry about people who work in this industry who are kind of harvey weinstein lights yeah well it's publicised, isn't it? Continue to exist in the film industry that people are so frightened of, of exposing them. Well, I'm not frightened, but I need the platform to do it. Mm. And there are lots of people I've been talking to already, desperate for to be given that platform as well. And I want to give them that platform. That's fair enough. You know, not not just about that. It's about ageism in the film industry you know women in the film industry older women in the film industry who are kind of ignored completely anyway any female actress over 45 unless you're a, a name an established name your mm. career is over at 45 which is terrible that's grim you know yeah they're mm. all out there you know all amazingly talented and um working in regional theater because there's no nothing for them there's loads of things I want to do on that score, but I need the platform to do it, and hopefully I'll have that next year. Good luck to you, Doug. I hope, luck, I, hope you, yeah. I hope you manage to pull it off, mate. I'm sure I've got no reason to think you won't. Fair play to you. Good stuff. Fight the power. There you go, mate. Fight the power. That's it. I want to be the power. You want to, I want to be in charge. <laughs> oh, I see. Fight yeah, I, the want to, power. I want to run the country. Oh, so, so, oh, yeah, well, I'll be up for that. I was going to do that once. I did, I did run for Mayor of London, the first Mayor of London election. That, did you really? Against Ken Livingston? Yeah, I pulled out of it after a while. Oh, Doug! Yeah, I pulled Doug. out. I've got, I've, uh, I've written a whole agenda for the football party. The oh, it was the football party, was it? How fantastic! No, yeah, it's, it's um, I think years ago it was. Um, you've got fourteen professional football clubs, top five football clubs inside the M25. You could galvanise a core of those support to vote for you. You're in, even in a town like Hemel. Go around all the pubs, you know, in the months leading up to a general election. Galvanise all the football supporters who couldn't really give a monkey. Is they're either going to vote Tory or Labour or not at all. Galvanise them to get. Out, Tony Brimson, MP, 
the football party. Football party is the, the thing. This right. is what we want. Representation of fans on boards, representation, you know, safe standing, all that sort of crap. Let's do it properly. And you do it. Anyone who had the balls to do it will pull it off. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Oh, mate. This is a whole side of you I didn't know, Doug. I didn't oh, know I, love. I didn't know you I'm ran like for mayor of London. I'm like an onion. You peel me away. There's loads of layers to it. Yeah, there's still loads of layers. Yeah, I've got lots of... Uh, it's too late now. I wouldn't do it now. No, but 20 years but, ago. Uh, a few we... years ago, we were very, very close to going. I mean, we, the, the first mayor of London thing. Yeah, we've got loads of decent press coverage as well. And uh, and then in the end, I just thought, it's too much like hard work. Do not scratch your eyes! Dougie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you uh, and to get you on the podcast at last. And uh, this one will go out. I do apologise for the previous two. That's me mentioning it now. But it's as always, um, whenever we're in your company, you're a great person to talk to. Very interesting guy. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. The pleasure is all mine. It's nice to do. We've practised three times now. So we're we're this. To... This. <laughs> not going to let you forget ever. He's going to mention Never. it again. We've had some rehearsal time. We've rehearsed. The first thing, yeah, we've had two, first... two rehearsals, so this one should be all right. The first thing you said to me, the first thing you said to me at Luther's inauguration, when's my podcast going out? Doug, it's not in my hands. It's not yeah, in my hands. Yeah, I, I won't tweet about it anymore. <laughs> no, no, you tweet about it as well. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I won't so, do it anymore, I promise. Uh, it's absolute, been a pleasure. Pleasure, absolute pleasure, Doug. I love spending time with you and it's, uh, yeah, all the best with uh, with what's going on. All right, chaps. And I'll see you soon, no doubt. Yeah, yep. absolutely. See you at the Vic right. on the Man United game. Be lucky. And yep. you, top man. Podcast Network. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to Geico.com or contact your local agent today. It's the 90th minute. All your mates around, you've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? <whistles> At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery free in terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.